Hello, all, and welcome to episode 46 of the Strength Ratio Podcast. I'm your host, as always, Zachary Greenwald, joined by Kyle Klachenko. And today we have a very special guest on. Uh, today, our guest is Jamie Tartar. Jamie is a PhD uh, and lecturer, researcher from uh the psycho- sorry from the NSU College of Psychology, and she professes in behavioral sciences with a focus on neuroscience. Jamie, sorry, I hope and and for those listeners, I'm going to be as sharp focused as I possibly can. But after getting in late last night from Thailand, where I experienced two Sundays back to back, I'm going to try to be as sharp as possible. So I, I do apologize if I got any of that wrong. That's fine. Um, so, Jamie, if you don't, wouldn't um, mind introducing yourself, uh, kind of, you know, in your own words, as well as your interests pertaining to the topic of stress, because today's podcast will be uh, diving a little bit more into stress, uh, as well as sleep, and for how athletes this falls into the larger context of fatigue management. Uh, so, yeah, uh, Jamie, I'll turn it over to you. Hi. Well, first of all, thanks for having me. I'm pretty excited to be on the podcast and hopefully share some good information and useful information. So my background, uh, primarily my PhD is in the neurobiology of stress, looking at stress circuits and how they relate to hormone systems and memory. And as we were chatting about earlier, everybody recognizes that stress and sleep are interconnected systems. When one changes, the other one changes. And so my postdoc was in sleep research, looking at sleep networks and the effects of sleep deprivation and sleep restriction. And so I've been doing that work initially in rodents. Um, Here at NSU, I've been doing that research in human, looking at human models to examine humans. It's kind of interesting for a neuroscientist, quite unusual, actually. Mm. (laughs) And recently, I, I had a student a few years ago who wanted to look at the effects of exercise on stress and the effects of exercise on emotion. And I knew a lot about emotion and stress. I knew absolutely nothing about exercise. And so I called up one of my very good friends who didn't know he was my good friend at the time, <laughs> here at NSU, Jose Antonio. And I said, can we work with you? And he said, I don't think he had a choice. He said, yes. And <laughs> I've, I've been working in exercise science and neuroscience pretty much ever since. And we have a great relationship. And it seems that my new exercise science friends, we we can't stop coming up with studies to do. So it seems like a kind of a perfect and beautiful marriage between these two fields. So that's why, that's why you might have a neuroscientist on your podcast, which might be a little bit different, but hopefully it'll become something a little bit more standard. No, yeah, it's, it's exactly what we've wanted. In fact. Um, and, and as we mentioned briefly before the show, sometimes when we have guests on, we get excited. We're like, Oh, we should probably just hit the play button because there's just good stuff that goes on there. But mm-hmm. as we started to speak about, um, you know, if, as human beings with our, you know, uh, just day-to-day stressors, and if we are athletes or consider ourselves such with our, our performance, uh, you know, it would seem that if we lived in a vacuum and we didn't have these commonly uh, uh, shared experiences with stress, things would uh, potentially be a little bit more predictable, uh, where you could follow uh, an exercise a, a longer term you know, sort of particular periodized plan to a T. Um, but, you know, as we're doing research on these older models of periodization where athletes have this long-term structure towards a specific goal, well, it, 
it just doesn't really seem to hold up practically for people who have jobs or even athletes uh, who have uh, daily fluctuations in energy or arousal or sleep, as we'll get into. And I really do think um, that this topic, as we'll dive into, uh, explains how when we can learn to perhaps have an improved understanding of stress and perhaps an improved relationship with stress, we'll see that while we aren't living in a bubble, that's perhaps a good thing. And just part of being human is learning how to manage that in mm -hmm. relation to life and in relation to training. Right, exactly. Great. So I, I, both Kyle and I have watched and listened to your TED Talk from 2012, and you spoke about perhaps reframing this relationship with stress. Um, do you mind touching on, uh, if you can recall from that talk, what the main message was that you were trying to deliver to the audience? Well, I think the main message then, and it's, it's the same message now, is just the general idea that we think athletes and regular folks think of stress as a bad thing. And we think of especially cortisol as a bad thing. But we actually want to recognize that your stress response system, the system in your body that responds to threats and responds to, especially for athletes, increased energy demands, there's really nothing wrong with that system and it works perfectly fine. Sometimes we come down a little bit too hard on stress responses and, and the word stress and cortisol when in, in actuality they're doing what they're supposed to do. You know, when cortisol is released with exercise, that's actually when it should be released. It's helping to increase energy reserves for your body. So it's not something to be scared of. Uh, you should you should enjoy that process. You know, with the release of cortisol, we also have the release of another hormone, irisin, which is sometimes called the exercise hormone. And under these conditions, when your body needs the energy, whatever cortisol is doing for your body at that point is, is helpful. We get into situations where cortisol can become a little bit dangerous and a little bit dysregulated when modern humans deal with situations of chronic psychological stress. So chronic, unpredictable psychological stress is really when we need to be concerned about these hormones becoming dysregulated. But certainly in an acute situation where you have an acute stress, an acute energy demand, there's really nothing wrong with what the stress system is doing for you at that point. I don't know if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. No, it, it definitely does. And mm -hmm. I think, and hopefully I don't offend anyone when I say this who's listening to the podcast, but um, I think that there's a difference between what you described and what people may have experienced with, say, like paying the bills or mm -hmm. um, it's the end of the day and you have to get groceries and then make the food. Like that's not the type of stress we're talking about here, right? Uh, what, what, what you're mentioning is a little bit more um, uh, persistent, a little bit more chronic, uh, if I'm not mistaken there, and just clarifying that. Yeah, so what you're talking about is what, what we all experience is daily life hassles. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that daily life hassles can become a chronic stress in some of us, and it really has to do with our perception of what those things are. Mm -hmm. So your stress response system, you have two stress response systems, really. You've got one that responds quickly and efficiently to stress. That's sort of that fight or flight system that relies on adrenaline <clears> being released in the adrenal gland. So that system's going to come online pretty quickly. But, you know, cortisol is a slower process and he, he doesn't really become quite high until, you know, 10 to 15 minutes after the onset mm. of the stressor. And the funny thing about cortisol in humans is he's very sensitive to psychological stress. So cortisol gets released when we ruminate on things, when we think about things that are threatening to us. Mm. And that's a little bit different for humans because unlike, unlike other animals, we can think about all the things that are driving us nuts. <laughs> and just sitting in your seat and thinking about all those daily life 
hassles and daily life challenges can become a chronic stressor if you ruminate on them. So it's really rumination that's that's the thing that person needs to control, which is why things like mindfulness, yeah. um, redirecting thoughts is really so important. It's critical to your psychological health just to get control of your thoughts. And, and we could even take it a step further and say it's important for performance as well, especially mm-hmm. athletic performance. You, 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 one of the things that we talk about a lot in psychology and in neuroscience is this idea of sort of that peak level of performance. And we know that if you're overly aroused, if your epinephrine levels are too high, you're Perform, you're going to be over that inverted U, right? So there's like a peak level of arousal that you want to be at for performance, but anything beyond that, your performance is going to start to suffer. Mm. So for everybody, but especially for people who are training, getting control over those thoughts is really critical for performance. I don't, one question I always had, especially with, because I've always, I know that exercise is great for uh, stress and p- perhaps uh for lack of a better term, releasing stress, but, and I've also heard mindfulness as well. Do those act in different ways or are they very similar to each other? Um, does, does that make sense what I'm asking? Yeah. I mean, they, they, they're both great for you. They work mm-hmm. a little bit differently. So, okay. um, mindfulness and any kind of compassion type activity really works on different areas of the brain. But one area in particular is sort of the insular cortex. And these are areas of the brain that we associate with happiness. It turns out, and I don't know, you know, many people might not know that, but your brain is kind of hardwired to think negatively. It's actually called mm-hmm. the negative bias, mm-hmm. the negative bias. And seeing things in a negative light kept all of our ancestors alive. And we're pretty much still here because all the happy people died. Right? <laughs> <laughs> all the people who were a little too optimistic. Yeah. So, so all humans are kind of born being able to detect negative information much more quickly. And we're really good at thinking about negative things. The problem with that is, and especially modern society, it really isn't good for our psychological health. Mm. So, you know, we we perceive you know, likes on Instagram as threats and stressors. Instead and, of a tiger. You know, we're really not built to live in these, this system, the social system of hundreds of thousands of people interacting with us on a daily basis. And so mindfulness really sort of gets at that system. It helps mm. with happiness and it helps with areas of the brain that we associate with positivity Whereas exercise is a little bit more indirect. And one of the things that can happen with chronic stress is we said that sometimes the chronic stress cortisol levels can become dysregulated. Well, in in the joke of all jokes, (laughs) the part of your brain that responds to cortisol and kind of puts the brakes on is the hippocampus. And that's the part of your brain that's also responsible for sort of the hub of learning and memory. And so when cortisol levels get really high, when chronic stress gets really high, for example, with depression, those cells can actually die. And we start to get into a little bit of trouble then because now the part of our brain responsible for turning off stress has cells that are dying. And one of the things that exercise does is it gives us an increase in a very special chemical called brain-derived neurotrophic factor. Kind of a mouthful, so we just say BDNF on the street. (laughs) (laughs) BDNF is you can think of it like food for your brain. It does all these wonderful things, like give you new neurons, help you get new connections in your brain, help your brain work better and think better, and helps those new neurons even in that area, the hippocampus, start to grow. And so, exercise, especially in high intense exercise, increases that chemical. It really increases the chemical that your that gives your brain all kinds of amazing benefits. 
Um, just a, a quick question I had there before Zach has uh, has one he wants to ask is the high inten- high intensity exercise. Are you referring to like high intensity interval training, or could that also be like hard weight training as well? It could be hard weight training as well. We're really talking about just getting your heart rate up. Mm-hmm. And so I know I don't lift weights that hard, <laughs> but <laughs> other people do. <laughs> so if you lift weights really hard, we're, we're, a lot of the studies are, you know, with anything with exercise, you know, we always have to consider as far as brain health goes, we always want to consider timing and duration and intensity and all mm-hmm. of these things matter. Usually the higher you go, the more benefits you're going to see. You know, there wasn't a lot of, if you look at sort of the literature broadly, you you don't have to do too much. I mean, usually it's three or four days a week for an hour at a time Mm. seem to be enough to confer a lot of these advantages. Mm, Okay. That's very interesting. Yeah. Uh, So Jane, what I'm, and I I had a question that I think I'm going to log for a second, and I guess it's just more um, kind of looking for uh, if, I don't know, (laughs) this might be difficult to put yourselves (laughs) Uh, put yourself in the role of, of a coach. Let's say you have a, a coach such as ourselves. We we know exercise quite well. Um, we're not uh, trained social workers. We're not uh, neuroscientists. But because this aspect uh, of life, stress that is, plays such a large role in what we're trying to accomplish, that is helping our clients reach a desired performance goal, it, does would you, this is going to just be, I think I'm looking for your professional uh, opinion here, is that, do you think it falls upon the coach to, outside of just being a positive source of support, just kind of listen to the athlete and provide uh, um, suggestions as for how they can have improved relationships with stress? Uh, at what point does a coach know perhaps to the, uh, perhaps refer to some one or something else, if that makes sense. Uh, at the moment, we check in with our athletes to see how they're doing. We try to be as positive and uh, reassuring a, a support system as possible. Uh, to some degree, with a- uh, athletes we've had for a long time, uh, they become friends. So we talk to them as if they were just that, which is friends. But how would someone who's neither a neuroscientist or a clinical psychologist help someone in, in that capacity? How-, how might you speak about it? Well, I'm not sure. I mean, I'm I'm not a strength coach, <laughs> but it sounds like there's they probably have a lot going on already. So I'm not sure playing the role of therapist may be too much to put on that one individual. Um, one of the things that we're doing on our end, um, my friends here um, that run exercise science, we've actually started a society recently called the Society for Neurosports. And it's sort of a nonprofit. One of the things that we're hoping to do is to get a lot of information out there, just this type of information to help strength coats and to help help athletes to give them the tools that they might need um, and to give academics doing research in these areas kind of a, a home to, to share their research. Yeah. But one of the things that um, I would at least be mindful of as a, as a strength coach is this idea that we know that their cognitive load is real. And the more somebody has on their mind, the less able they're going to be to perform. So if you if you have a lot of things on your mind, in that moment while you're trying to do whatever sport you do, you're not going to be as good at it, right? We know that your brain can only pay attention to so many things at a time. And even if they're not at the front of your attention, all of those life hassles that we talked about earlier that are weighing on you are going to influence your performance a little bit. So I see it would at least be helpful for coaches to recognize that it's not weakness to show a little bit of vulnerability and to allow 
the athlete to at least share that they, they do have things going on outside of outside of the sport and maybe refer out to a sports psychologist. And I think, especially for men in particular, there, there is a lot of, sometimes it's difficult for them to seek help, but psychological distress is real and, and, you know, life is hard. Life is hard for all of us and nobody should ever feel ashamed to seek help. And nobody should ever feel that it's embarrassing to talk about, you know, just needing to talk to somebody. I think, you know, psychologists are there to help everyday people with everyday problems and everybody's got them. So I think just acknowledging it and trying to remove maybe the, the, the burden that comes with any type of stigmatization about you know maybe needing to chat with somebody about these issues, it's going to make for a better athlete mm. oh, and yeah. it's going to make for a happier athlete. And now not that um, the, well, maybe they can, but uh, my, my question that I backlogged uh, that I'll posit now is, are, are there athletes or just, I should say people who perhaps are more inclined to that um, kind of like negative thought patterning, or perhaps it's just that it's harder for them to find a positive reframing than others on a genetic level, or is this largely something that is uh, nurtured based on past experiences? I, I would imagine perhaps a little bit of both. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. Yeah, I teach a, I actually teach a class here called Behavioral Genetics, and we talk oh, exactly awesome. about this. That it's it's always both, right? There, people sometimes are just born with a little bit of a predisposition towards, you know, what we talk about as dysthymia. You know, they're not depressed, but they kind of hover around there. Some people just seem to find happiness easier than others, and and this is this is these are the individual differences that make us all charming, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they make us all who we are. And so, yeah, some people just are a little bit more likely to see to see the negative side of things. And so we, if you recognize that in a person and, you know, it might be worth just acknowledging it and trying to help them be the best athlete they can, they can be. Yeah. Rather than maybe saying like, Hey, come on, you have to be this like yeah. chipper person all the time. It's just perhaps bringing attention to yeah, and I mean, you If somebody told you they had a broken knee, you wouldn't be like, come on. Yeah, yeah, exactly. What's wrong with your knee? <laughs> Well, that's, that's well, you know, you know, the problem with these problems is that you don't always see what's going on in someone's say, brain. Uh, and so it's hard to, Sometimes it's 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 hard to acknowledge it and it's hard to be sensitive to it because we don't see it. Yes, and I think the the reason I say that is because I, I'm a very emotive person, so I'm like sometimes it, to like superlative ends, and uh, um, <laughs> I I uh, want to also just acknowledge and having worked many years with an array of personalities is that you know I'm that 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 might and ought not to be the goal for someone who just doesn't feel inclined to behave that way if they don't, um, but just perhaps instead trying to bring attention to positive things as they occur. Right. And, and it, it actually echoes conversations I've been having with some of my friends recently about this idea, you know, in science, we, we talk about findings, but, you know, we're always talking about the average person and mm. there's lots of people who aren't the average person. And sometimes it, it behooves all of us to just think about that person as the individual and not the average responder in a study. Yeah. We have hundreds of people to get those responses. Yeah, it's, it's it's interesting we're talking about this and kind of that tangible versus intangible uh, uh, thing where the other day I was talking with someone about how like in sports uh, uh, with genetics, you can know pretty easily if you're not going to be a, an NBA athlete. Uh, you, you can say like, oh, I just don't have the genetics to – I'm not six eight. I can't. I don't have a forty inch vertical. Like I just don't have the genetics in me. Where for some of these intangible things, potentially like positivity or even uh, uh, effort, like working hard, things like that, 
they're so intangible. It's hard to like, it's just more on you to, to do them and to get better at them. And everyone's supposed to be great at it or work really hard or do these things. But it, it's because of that intangible part of it that it's like, I think that's where a lot of stress comes from. Yeah. And, and you're, I think you're right. It is intangible. And I think there's a lot of people that it's really the million dollar question, right? Can we predict what are the personality traits for mental toughness? Mm. What are the genetic traits? What is it that really needs to coalesce to make somebody be able to do everything that it takes to get to that elite level mm. and not another person? And we're not, we're not really good at predicting that right now, given, yeah. given what we know about biology and psychology. Yeah. One we're of our, <laughs> yeah, our, um, I, I like how uh, this is our, um, so our, our, kind of our, our human performance uh, science consultant. We don't have yet a neuroscience consultant, but uh, for you know, we actually have a a, a company that we admire. They were largely with bodybuilders, but they have a, a registered or I think a licensed uh, um, either social worker or or therapist that helps their athletes, which I think is great. But um, what I was backtracking to is that we have uh, our own science consultant who described that kind of like. Uh, hard work or mental toughness as like when you have a, uh, let's say you're doing sprints or you like suicide sprints in a gym and you have a little line that you have to go past. It's like just simply going past that line uh, rather than sneaking up and kind of being shy of the line. It doesn't or, require or touching it versus not or touching, touching it. it versus not touching it. It's not something that's extraordinary. It's just recognizing like the completion of the task to its fullest. And it's something that something that everyone can explore in themselves. Right. Exactly. So, um, one one thing that I want to start phasing into, Jamie, um, because I, I think it was I, I really gleamed a lot into how you recommended just kind of having this uh, talk around stress with athletes and and understanding your role as a strength coach and not acting out of your scope of practice. Um, are there um, certain ways that you would recommend a coach to perhaps gather? data that would seem appropriate and befitting of the profession to influence uh, uh, an athlete's progress, um, ways that we've heard about or, or implement currently is with like athlete questionnaires or asking for perceived exertion levels of a particular exercise so that if we have something in mind of a level of exertion and they perceive it much differently and perhaps that that pervades over a longer time, well, we might then strike up conversation if anything else is going on. But um, have you heard of anything like that or recommend anything else different? I, I actually have heard, and I, and I know there's a few companies right now that are sort of invested in that, right? Getting this idea of, of sort of central fatigue and autonomic fatigue and how might that predict an individual's performance at any given moment in time. I, I don't think the science is quite there. We, we don't, have that missile like precision because you know the problem with humans is we're so different from each other mm -hmm. what works for one person is not going to work for another person we we see this over and over and over again and again that's why we're comfortable talking about averages but if you it's sort of funny because i actually am exploring this with another friend who, who trains boxers and we're he's looking right now at autonomic arousal in them and we're trying to take a peek and see in at an individual basis can you get an individual's baseline and sort of follow them out and do things like galvatic skin response, um, cortisol levels, epinephrine levels, heart rate variability. Can we predict where a certain person should be at relative to where they are at baseline, performing well, performing poorly? So we're exploring that right now. And I, and I know there's a bunch of other groups who are doing it. I don't think we're quite there yet. 
Um, but I think the research is sort of ongoing. Hmm. Gotcha. Uh, uh, something that came to mind, especially when we were talking about uh, the benefits of exercise and mindfulness is, I feel like it's died down a little bit, but kind of around when your talk came out or like 2015-ish, I felt like I saw a lot of um, either apps or websites that were like brain training around, uh, yeah, positivity and other things. Um, what's uh, what's your take on all of those? And is, it, is, is that science there or is that just kind of all uh, someone took one study and ran with it to support something or, yeah. Yeah, well, yeah, and you'll notice I'm being very careful not mm -hmm. to say any products or company because yeah, yeah. I've learned my lesson. <laughs> the minute you say a company, people call you a shill, and I, I haven't gotten any shill money yet, so yeah. I'm really disappointed in that. <laughs> um, yeah, mostly there's nothing there, mm -hmm. honestly. It's nothing you could save your money, right? Because mm -hmm. we know that the best thing that you can do and what all those companies are getting at is this idea it's controlling your thoughts. Mm -hmm. you, you know, find a way to control your thoughts, you win. And mindfulness can do that. Tai Chi can do that. Um, attention training can do that. Prayer can do that if you're religious. Mm -hmm. There's lots of ways to do it, but the sort of the joke is that the more you can focus on positive thoughts, and, po and which is really hard for humans, right? Positive thoughts about another person. Yeah. Um, your brain actually changes structurally. Uh, in ways that make you healthier and ultimately happier. It takes a long time. You know, we talk about this idea that brain training is very similar to going to the gym. Yeah. You know, if you got a little bit, it's not going to work. You, you got to really put effort and time and patience. And over time, you'll get bigger muscles, but you got to put the time in. It's the same thing with the brain. Synaptic plasticity and brain plasticity is a very slow process. And if you keep hitting that network over and over again with positive thinking, redirecting, reframing, eventually you will find yourself to be you know, a little bit happier at a default level. So it's kind of nice to think by thinking positively and thinking positively about other people, maybe especially other people who you don't like very much, <laughs> you actually make yourself healthier. Has there been any observation um, as for how people report, just at least qualitatively, with these kind of thoughts or relationships with stressors based on where they live, uh, in the world or just based on um, perhaps uh, race or different uh, experiences or anything like that? Well, like we talked about earlier, there is a large degree of um, individual differences just innately. Some people are mm -hmm. just innately default to happier than others. But we do know that um, people, who, you know, people who, who have low socioeconomic Right. And we also know that people who live in cities, large cities, ha are, are not as happy as people who don't live in large cities. It's very difficult to explain because even when you control for lots of variables, they just don't seem as happy. Hmm. So living and like we talked about earlier, your, your brain isn't really wired to live in very large communities with you know thousands of people passing you by you know, on a daily basis, which probably plays a large role in that. Something that came to mind uh, for me. Uh, especially with the large community things is, is there, and this might be uh, something you can't speak to directly, but is there research or uh, hypotheses around how our brain might change in the future with these social networks being so large and us having to adapt or evolve to it as, as we keep, you know, going into the future here, which I imagine there would have to be something happening. 
Yeah, I mean, I think you well, what we're seeing now is an increase in psychopathology. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, you know, the, the funny thing with natural selection is it, it works if it's adaptive at a level of reproduction, mm. right? So if everybody survives, everybody <laughs> reproduces, there's really no selection there. Yeah. I, it's a little <laughs> a little off topic, but it's a really great conversation, especially yes, when it's like yeah. modern living in modern societies and how, how we can adapt to that is, is really fascinating. Yeah, yeah. That's you know, it's, it's interesting, too, because we, we in genetics, you know, we talk about genetic engineering and recent mm-hmm. advances with CRISPR-Cas9 systems. And, and then, you know, there's a lot of work coming out with AI. So it's. It's kind of a bar and beer conversation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, uh, Jamie, you also um, were able to spend time researching sleep. Uh, and if mm-hmm. um, we were to talk about sleep as uh, it pertains to its importance for cognitive function and performance, has there been any research uh, of late to come out that? kind of confirms a body of uh, research that has been uh, producing a certain result for a given time now. Uh, I know that I've heard certain numbers of sleep being thrown out there. I've heard seven, <laughs> I've heard eight. How much does it actually matter? Like you said, individual difference plays a role. Um, might you, you shed some light on that? Yeah, and it's, it's actually, it's a really exciting time for sleep. We're, we're, we're having a good time in sleep research. Yeah. Um, you know, if you had asked me 10 years ago, the same question, I, I wouldn't have as much to say in the last, especially since 2013, it's, it's been pretty mind blowing. Um, we, so we know that if humans don't sleep, humans and other animals don't sleep, they'll die, right? We know that sleep is critical for basic survival, but one of the cool findings that came out in 2013 is we know that one of the things that sleep is doing for you is it's actually cleaning out your brain. So during sleep and only during sleep. The space between your neurons, when we talk about interstitial space, actually increases. And the cerebral spinal fluid during deep sleep and during sleep comes actually into your brain thanks to these helper cells in the brain, these glymphatic astrocyte cells. They help to bring the cerebral spinal fluid into the brain and actually flush out toxins and toxic proteins in your body, that, in your brain that have built up. So, for example, the initial paper that came out showed um, amyloid beta being flushed out during sleep, and that's the pro- protein that we associate with Alzheimer's disease. Wow. Yeah, so we knew that people who didn't, like a lifetime of poor sleep was was bad. We knew that people who were poor sleepers were getting neurodegenerative diseases and were having health issues, but we didn't know why. So the fact that now we know the brain doesn't have a lymph system like the rest of the body does. So it wasn't clear what was happening during sleep. But now we know that this now what's called the glymphatic system, the cerebral spinal fluid flushing out your brain during sleep, really taking out the waste products during sleep is really how that happens. Gives us a new reason to allow ourselves to sleep at night. Wow. That, that I'd never heard that before. That's fascinating. Is it, you had, you had uh, used the terms good sleep uh, and, and bad sleep. What, what, would we define as being bad sleep in terms of duration or perhaps if there is any way without having a lab setting, how you might know if that sleep is quote unquote, like deep sleep? You, well, you touched on it earlier and you're, you're exactly right that sleep, like any other biological variable is, you know, like height, for example, we, we can talk about the average height for a person. Um, but then there's people who are much taller and then there's people who are much shorter but the further you get away from that average, the less likely it is. Mm. It's very similar with sleep. We can say the average person does need eight hours of sleep, 
uh, but there are some people, they're, they're actually called super short sleepers, mm. who can get by on five or six hours, and that's their natural biological rhythm. Some people might need a little bit more. And the, it's hard to know, especially in modern society, but if you're, if you're sleeping and you're waking up, with, waking up without an alarm clock and you're going to bed and waking up at the same time every day, that's a pretty good sign for you that that's your target. But for, for most people, it should be right around seven or eight hours of sleep a night. Yeah. I, oh, well, I was just going to say it's uh, on, on the super short sleepers is um, I believe it was uh, Greg Knuckles. We actually referenced him a lot. He's a um, uh, uh, fitness writer, um, really smart guy, uh, has a website strength. It's actually stronger by science now. I almost quoted his old one. But he, he had an interesting idea where um, basically he thought that one of the reasons uh, sleep in the United States has become so, um, I can't think of the word, but like, oh, well, like you, you need to sleep less because then you can work harder and so on and so on. It's because the people who are the super short sleepers are the ones who can work longer and work harder. And they're sometimes overwhelmingly the people who are, more successful um, on average because they have shorter sleep and meaning they can work longer. And I just thought that was a really interesting idea. And, um, it's not yeah, really a question, it, it, I guess. It, there's really good evidence to support that idea that mm. people have looked at this and super short sleepers, we hate them. They're happier, more successful. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> They're doing better. And it's actually true for, um, so your, your, your circadian rhythm, your sleep cycle, your, your daily cycle is actually determined by very specific genes in your brain mm. in the area of your brain called the suprachiasmatic nucleus, which is your internal clock. And everybody has got different flavors of these genes. And depending upon which flavor you have, you are you either more likely to be a night owl or, or a lark. Mm. And yeah. most people are night owls, but a good amount of people are larks. They like to get up earlier and go to bed earlier. And they also do better. Larks mm. do better than night owls. We, we value that as a society, you know, getting up early, getting to work early. The problem is that it is it is pretty strongly genetically determined, so there's yeah. not not too much you can do about it. If I'm, I happen to be a night owl, so it sucks. <laughs> yeah, I was just gonna say it's it's unfortunate that for a lot of people, it would seem that the our culture is centered around the short sleep, or you have to get up early to get to work, and and things like that. Because like as you just said previously, um, it could lead to long term health uh, negative health effects. Yeah, the, I mean, the most important thing is is sleeping, consolidated sleep. Because if you don't get the amount of sleep that you need, you're now you're in a you're in sleep restriction, mm -hmm. and we know that chronic sleep restriction is really where those health consequences start to come in. Psychopathology, again, risk for neurodegenerative diseases, obesity. You you gain weight independent of how much you're eating, mm -hmm. but less sleep. Um, it's, it's really the time for your brain to do all that restorative. And we you know we've showed we've done plenty of studies here, and we, we've um, looked at the, you know, the idea that the brain can't process emotional information. So lack of sleep leads to emotional instability. Mm. Uh, we, we took some, so the most scary thing is we took some college students who are, these, these guys are really healthy. They're young, <laughs> peak of their life, you know, 20 years old. And we kept them awake overnight and we saw increases in microRNAs associated with cancer. Mm. Um, you, know, they, you assume they go back down the next night. Um, ATP changes, um, changes in um whole genome methylation so epigenetic changes so it's wow. yeah the best thing you can do and it's kind of funny because we like you were saying we, we value 
early birds, but we also value stupidly, right? As a society, we value not sleeping and we brag mm-hmm. about it and we mm-hmm. think it's it's something to, you know, we wear it as a badge of honor. Like, yeah. oh, I am so busy. I only slept three hours and two days. And yeah, it, it, we got to, we got to start thinking about sleep as basic hygiene. And, and, and the other funny thing for, especially for the athletes and the strength coaches is that sleep is actually a time where our memories are consolidated mm-hmm. and motor memory is consolidated and REM sleep procedural memory and non-declarative memory sort of memory for facts is consolidated in non-REM sleep. So if you're not sleeping as an athlete, not only you're not restoring your brain and, you know, helping your brain stay healthier, but you're also not probably remembering all those skills that you try to learn during the mm-hmm. day very well. Mm-hmm. Oh, and I just have, Zach has another question. I just have one more. It's such an interesting topic is, um, many times people will potentially sleep less during the week because it's either the work week, they're doing things and then quote, catch up on sleep on the weekend. Um, and I've heard terms like you have sleep debt, um, uh, that, or that, that is real. That isn't real. Uh, is that potentially a good strat? Like it, could that be an okay strategy? Cause the weekly average then becomes greater. Cause I know like if you're, uh, cutting weight, you can use a strategy of perhaps uh, cutting calories more during the week so that on the weekends you can uh, maybe be a little bit more relaxed and have fun. But on average, the weekly caloric deficit is uh, what you need to continue uh, losing weight. Um, So I was just wondering if something like that could be okay with sleep or is it really like a daily thing that you need? It's it's really a daily thing. I know that's not the answer you want to hear. Yeah. <laughs> the the best thing for your brain is to go to sleep and wake up at the same time every day. It's if you do build up a sleep debt, and that that is the word. Um, it's certainly better to pay that that debt off on Saturday mm. and Sunday than to continue to sleep restrict. Mm. So it's better than not doing it. But the best thing to do is to get consolidated sleep seven days a week. Mm. So uh, I have always always as as long as i can remember just have been excited to i think i am one of these early birds i i was yeah. excited so to, yeah. <laughs> I, I excited to wait i i even in like elementary school uh despite my parents wishes for me to like even then they were like concerned I, there was this show on at six o'clock in like elementary school and you didn't start until like nine but yeah. i just i loved waking up early and starting my day as such and all throughout my academic career i i felt very productive early morning. I felt like that was my time. Um, and uh, having been recently uh, wed and having uh, uh, planned uh, a wedding, which culminated ultimately in a wedding that was surrounding like this once uh, every hundred year uh, uh, hurricane that threatened North Carolina, which like was just the, it was the best time ever, but it was just a, what I'm trying to get at. It was a stressful experience leading up to it. And despite um, like getting less sleep than what I normally got, which was like six and a half hours, I was brought down to about like six, maybe sometimes like five and a half. And I wanted to be mindful that I wouldn't increase the likelihood of injury with training or uh, increase Kyle and our other business partner, Becca's uh, frustration with me around perhaps being curmudgeon and just grumpy with getting low sleep. Um, so mm-hmm. I'm always getting like that feedback and just trying to see like, a- am I actually, uh, someone who can Wake work yeah. with this type of time or am I almost convincing myself 
that I can, where, where that might be a false narrative. So what, what I tried to do was monitor my progress. And really a lot of, I didn't look at body composition uh, with good accuracy as much as just my training results. And training seemed to hold just fine. Um, uh, in asking my wife out outside of like the normal stress that I caused her, it just it didn't <laughs> seem to change either. Um, and uh, I, I thought that, well, okay, maybe if performance is staying about the same and my uh, mental clarity for lack of a better word, or just like productivity with work stayed the same, then perhaps that means that I found that six and a half could be what I need. Um, do you think I try for seven to see if that feels better? Um, how might someone, obviously a recommendation, like a general recommendation is a great place to start as with most, but, um, is that a good way of kind of like self, uh, reporting on that or, or self-diagnosing? Yeah. And so what you're, what you're trying to answer is your, was what's called your own free running rhythm. Like how much sleep do you as an individual need? And that's, that's actually really, it's really hard to answer, but we would say that if you're getting that amount of sleep every day and you're, you don't need the alarm clock, you're waking up on your own and you can maintain that sort of healthy sort of daily night rhythm, then that probably is the amount of sleep that you need. If you start to feel that you want to sleep in and you're forcing yourself to get up, that's a different scenario. Yeah. Well, the one thing that's hard with sleep is being being sleep restricted or sleep deprived. You know, it's a lot like being drunk. You know, we're the we're the, the person who is like the worst at acknowledging our own state. So it's I'm good totally that you're fine. I'm totally fine. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, the, one of the things that uh, we know with emotion processing is one of the quickest things to go with sleep loss. Your cognitive processing, you'll hold on to that a little bit longer, um, but you'll see the psychological deterioration first. Um, it's a little bit of emotional instability, but then the, one of the first things that you can look at cognitively would be um, psychomotor vigilance, your ability to pay attention to to a task over time. Mm. And, and that's the thing that we're in, like pilots. You know, we want to know that they're uh, they can maintain vigilance with, with a little bit of sleep. Well, um, when we look into in, into some of these um, uh, research studies being conducted. Ha have you looked at any uh, surrounding performance that might look at uh, specific uh, uh, performance detriments uh, in, in any uh, uh, aspect of fitness or performance? Um, you know, I think, and this is why we're, this is actually one of the other reasons we're really excited to start neurosports is I don't think that a lot of researchers have, it's, it seems like it's low hanging fruit, right? And there has been some studies that have done, but not many. Um, I know there, for example, there was a study that looked at, um, performance in NBA players, right? And they, but you can't directly, you know, it's hard with sleep to directly test anybody's sleep because to record sleep, you really need to bring somebody into a sleep lab and hook them up to a PSG. So you get inevitably these sort of indirect measures. So with the NBA players, they looked at their tweeting uh, hmm. behavior because they figured <laughs> if they were tweeting, they couldn't have been sleeping. And they found the ones that had tweeted the latest had poorer performance the next day in the next day's game. Mm. So there's a lot of these kind of indirect measures. They, they With sports, they do a lot of um, work with, instead of restricting them, they, they do sleep extension. And you can't, again, you can't force somebody to go to sleep, but instead of restricting them, you ask them to sleep for nine hours a night and see if you see a change in their performance. Mm. Um, but because usually people are home, we, we give them actual watches or actographs, little wristbands sort of like the ones that are on your iPhone and we get gross measures, but measures of sleep, yeah. but it's, it's an area, you know, cause with, with athletes and trainers, we've spent a lot of time looking 
from the neck down, but I think a lot of people recognize it might be time to look, you know, mm-hmm. from the neck up. <laughs> yeah, that's oh, huge, I think. For sure. Um, now, I think a lot of us are, are familiar with hearing recommendations uh, around perhaps screen time or like the, the, the types of uh, arousal you have, meaning like that you have this uh, perhaps nighttime ritual in which you're starting to unwind and relax. Mm-hmm. Um, do you have any, uh, uh, or have you looked at any literature that you've been excited to see that would perhaps like refine this recommendation or improve yeah. this recommendation? Yeah, I was just going to ask, what is good sleep hygiene then? Right, so... So, for mo- well, most of us don't have it, right? But <laughs> I mean, it's really that just that basic definition: getting consistent sleep every night. And one of the best things that you could do is is wake up without an alarm clock at the same time every day. Mm. Your your brain's very nice to you, and when you wake up naturally, believe it or not, <laughs> we're the problem over and over again. Mm. When we sleep naturally, our our brain wakes us up from REM sleep. So it's it's a stage of sleep where your cortex looks like it's awake. Right. This is when you have your most vivid dreams. And so it goes into this, you know, very so you cycle all night long from very deep sleep to REM sleep, deep sleep to REM sleep. And as you get closer to morning, you spend more time in REM sleep. And then when you wake up naturally, you wake up from REM sleep, which is a little bit easier. Mm. If you wake up with your alarm clock and you feel like you just got hit by a truck, you were probably in deep sleep. Right. Which is it's it's not pleasant to wake up from deep sleep. Uh, So you're if you sort of have this healthy relationship with sleep where you go to bed at night, sort of set bedtime, you feel tired, you wake up 6am, 7am, and you can do that consistently every day. This is, this is how we did it before we had light bulbs, you know, yeah. damn, medicine messed us all up. Yeah. Um, are, are there any recommendations that you give to people who are perhaps hyper aware of this or hyper vigilant in that they're not getting a lot of sleep and they're attempting to have better sleep hygiene, but it's coming hard for them perhaps there's something medical going on, but maybe in this case more specifically, there's just anxiety around this. Does this come back to just um, more of the uh, uh, relaxation measures that you'd mentioned before? Um, Or is it Mm -hmm. different when it comes to uh, sleep and and getting getting to bed? Yeah, I mean, I and I should say, like, in the interest of full disclosure, I'm the biggest walking contradiction ever. Like, <laughs> I went, I went into sleep research because I'm a crappy sleeper, and now I just know why I'm going to die. Like, I'm not really. <laughs> <it hasn't happened. laughs> but I, I had the uh, diagnosis of the sleep disorder in college, and it, it, it's horrible. Um, so I empathize with everybody. Mm. It's, um, it's awful. But what we know, <laughs> so one of the issues for us, like we said, light in in your eye, in your retina. You have a whole cluster of cells that only respond to light. Their entire job is to tell your brain, oh, there's light out, wake up, or there's not light out, go to sleep. And this mechanism has served us well for millions of years. And then again, the light bulb and gets confused. This is the system mm-hmm. that triggers melatonin release at night. And so obviously one of the best things we can do is stay in, stay in relatively dim conditions at night especially short wavelengths of light, blue light is what these cells are sensitive to. So you'd want to try to, you know, watch your light exposure at night. And the biggest cause of insomnia for most adults is anxiety, right? Uh, Most adults don't sleep because, you know, at 3 a.m., I I always think I have a brain tumor, right? That's when I always have all these horrible things. And then you wake up in the morning and everything's better and (laughs) we're all healthy again. So you want to try to control 
the extent to which it's possible, right? Control anxiety, um, whatever, whatever you need to do, Fibonacci sequences, um, take your mind off of all of the, the worries, which is easy to say, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, whether listening to an audiobook or listening to boring lectures, um, but just to control those sleep conditions. You know, one of the things that um, we know also is if you use your bed for other things that aren't – not sex. You can do that in bed, but like <laughs> other things, like you don't want to watch TV in bed. You don't want to party in bed. You want to associate your bed with sleeping. Mm-hmm. Um, you can do other fun stuff though. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, and, um, see, obviously, you know, alcohol, um, impairs that, that sleep architecture that we talked about, you know, where you've got to cycle up and down all night. Mm-hmm. Um, you want to avoid, I know these are all, these are, none of these things are fun, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> but they all help with sleep. <laughs> So what, this is kind of, um, uh, I guess, more of a personal question because right, yeah, this happened to me last night. Is what's happening where? So last night, um, I felt like I was awake the whole night. Like I felt like I was thinking. Haven't you had that a lot? And like- I yeah, I remember. I can remember thinking, but then when I woke up, like I feel pretty refreshed today. But it, like if through the night, I was like, man, I'm just not falling asleep. But then it, like four hours would go by. I'm not, I feel like I need to test you. That's what I feel like. <laughs> I feel well, like you need to come to my lab. <laughs> yeah. It wasn't what you, you were reporting, like at the same time that I was planning the wedding and getting like four and five hours of sleep, you were yeah. getting seven or eight and you felt like I still feel tired. Like you Yeah, to... that, that does happen to me sometimes too, where that's, I was considering going to get potentially like um, a sleep test done on me because sometimes I feel like I get seven to eight or even eight to nine hours and I still I feel if more tired or still very tired the next day and I'm like that doesn't make sense to me yeah and that, and that's actually it I think you hit nail on the head there and that's the biggest key with sleep is one of the ways we know that we're not doing well is excessive daytime sleepiness and anytime you have daytime sleepiness that's the biggest trigger that something's not going on for you something's not right we shouldn't be sleepy during the day mm. and um yeah I think going to get that Sleep test is, is a great answer. Most people most people don't know it, but most people's insurance pays for it too, mm-hmm. um, because it could be anything. And especially, you know, a lot of people, even when people are thin and in shape, you know, they could still have a little bit of sleep apnea. Mm-hmm. Um, the that, problem with having sleep disorders, you're, you're you're the last person who'll know. Yeah, yeah, and that's that's the thing is, um, a, the person a, next to you is going to know. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's it's funny. Uh, my uh, my girlfriend, she says I move around a lot in my sleep. Uh, and I, I don't know if that's uh, part of the reason, or maybe I do have some sort of sleep apnea. Uh, but yeah, you know, like we talk about like restless leg, like there's lots of things and it doesn't hurt to get it. Yeah. Just like, again, like hygiene, if you had a sore tooth, you'd go to the dentist. If you, <laughs> yeah. you know, you had a knee injury, you'd go see the doctor. So it's totally worth getting it, just doing a sleep test. Oh, interesting. Yeah. 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 Uh, this, these talks and like, like we've mentioned, you know, it's not, perhaps the sexiest stuff or some, sometimes you like take the sexy stuff or fun stuff away. Um, but it, it is amazing. And I, I don't, and I think, you know, before I had mentioned that if we had seen any like, you know, larger type, I, I know, uh, I think the CDC, or I don't know if it's the CDC, but there's the happy planet index. Uh, I don't know if you've heard of that. Um, it, it's like, just as the look at like these global averages, they'll look at like some purported measure of happiness and it's and, gotten better over time. And well, I, some, there are some places that have um, higher ratings in this happy planet index than others. Um, but I, I just think about our athletes. We have, uh, many athletes who are internationals, but 
especially when I look at our athletes in the States, uh, it, it seems like you said to be this culture of, you know, work super, super hard. Um, that there is kind of like this sometimes warrior mentality around getting very low sleep and well, yeah. around responding to how you feel with, Oh, I'm just super busy. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and your relationship with busyness in general. Yeah. Like while I was just, I was just uh, on my honeymoon and we, we met so many internationals and they would comment on how we as Americans were taking off from work. And if that was stressing us out, because it seems like even globally, uh, people recognize us as individuals who don't take that time that's needed to rest and relax and unwind. And uh, it just, as we talk about it more and more, it seems like, wow, this is super important. But then why is it that right before bed, we'll check Instagram or do yeah. these things. It's so hard. Yeah, well, the problem with social media is it's scratching a lot of itches, right? A lot of social itches that we as humans have, and they're getting right in there. You know, we have literally in our fingertip access to hundreds of thousands of people. Your brain, it's you know, you have two brain systems. You've got one that you know works really fast off instincts, and then you've got sort of the slower rational system. And unfortunately, he doesn't always win out. <laughs> this, the same, the same system that makes us eat a donut instead of an apple. Yeah. Um. Actually, one question that just popped in my mind, and this, this is maybe going back a little bit more towards uh, similar to like the brain training type stuff, is brain, for lack of a brain supplements. Um, are, are there any out there that, similar to like whey protein for, for training, that are showing any results or um, are shown as uh, efficacious um, nowadays? Or is that still kind of a search going on? I mean, it, it is... I think it's unclear. You know, I know there's a lot of, um, there was review papers a few years out now. Like, for example, a lot of people take like modafinil for, to increase attention. And, you know, maybe that works with, um, when you're studying for, you know, medical school or dental school. Um, mm -hmm. But as far as performance goes, one of the supplements that I do think has some pretty good research around it is creatine. Um, it does seem that creatine does, appears to, if you, you know, some, pretty well done research studies to show that it does have some beneficial effects on brain health. Hmm. Um, where that goes, I think it's a little bit unclear um, and the extent to which it can actually give you um, some neuroprotection, I think still needs to be worked on, but it's, it's an interesting supplement that as a neuroscientist, I'm kind of excited to see hmm. where that research goes. It definitely is, is, is interesting. It looks like there, there might be something there. I tend to be much more conservative than other people, though. With my <laughs> well, it's it's well, it's very similar in in the fitness industry in general mm -hmm. or in sports. Is that um, supplements have you know blown up so much, and there's really only like a handful that actually work. But uh, everyone mm -hmm. likes to tout that they found the newest and greatest one. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's well, then that's what's kind. Of, I mean, for me, that's really what's funny is, you know, especially with all these you know my sports friends, is there's a lot of focus on supplements and on protein and and but no one really talks about those other things that are so easy to fix you know yeah. stress and sleep make mm -hmm. a huge difference in performance and they're things that to, to a large extent we can control but you know you you, you get like a, a fraction of a percent you know 0.0001 percent from a supplement but you could get much more than that from just sleeping well oh yeah so it's funny <laughs> it's 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 um, yeah yeah, it, it, there seems to be like the, this, um, I, I would, I found it to be analogous where um, people will look at like these very strange looking 
quote-unquote like accessory exercises that you can't really know what it's for but it has all of these like just kind of bogus like health benefits or joint benefits that have like zero uh, 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 literature to back them it just kind of stops you in your tracks on your social networking like thumb scrolling because you're yeah. like that looks very strange and unlike what I see but if you want stronger <laughs> legs you're probably going to squat and not do this one kind of crazy thing that someone touts as being effective where I feel like if you want stronger legs, you squat versus doing uh, a BOSU ball, uh, um, yeah. like some craziness. It, it seems like uh, sleep might be the squat in that example where people try to mask their ability to recover or think cognitively uh, with uh, perhaps other things rather than sticking to the basics where it seems, again, while they are the basics, they might be the hardest to adhere to it. I, I don't know what the, the trick is to get more people on board, but I think the best place is just education. Uh, so, you know, just having you uh, on the podcast and, as you mentioned, creating these networks for people in this field to have a greater voice in the uh, performance field and, and for those partaking in it and listening, it seems to be the best yeah, uh, place to right. start. Yeah, I mean, the basics are the basics for a reason. They're tried and true and they work. It, but it's that fast and slow sort of brain issue. It's much easier to try to find a quick fix than do what is, you know, sort of true and told. Sleep well, eat well, get rest, decrease stress. All these things work, and they've been demonstrated to work. You know, as long as we've been at this. Yeah, and um, if I can just before we wrap it up and, and being respectful of your time, um, mm -hmm. is that. Uh, one, uh, I, I know that, um, and this is just selfish, but I had it on my list to ask, but I'd forgotten, is that, so I know um, melatonin is, is it's secreted naturally in our, our brains and, and controls our sleep cycles. Um, is there any research to show that supplementing with melatonin over prolonged periods to help fall asleep is at all detrimental um, if it's taken uh, in, you know, if it's in, ingested in, in any type of way relative to not using it and just letting it uh, secrete uh, naturally in the pineal gland? Yeah, um, well, light, we, so we know that light at night is, is actually considered a carcinogen for the American Cancer Society. That it is a, So light at night is associated with all kinds of deleterious health consequences. And some researchers look to melatonin suppression as a possible mechanism through which that happens. And so if you, the, you don't need to supplement with melatonin as long as you're staying in a dim environment, but melatonin, melatonin can be really helpful when you're traveling, mm. especially when you're traveling across time zones to help reset your clock. But if you're, if you are not having a lot of light exposure at night, your melatonin levels are probably fine. It's sort of like your coffee cup is already full. It doesn't, it's not going to help you to put more coffee in it. If somebody takes melatonin and they find that that helps them go to sleep, there's really nothing wrong with it. Melatonin mm. is relatively safe. There's there's really not can't really go wrong too much there. Okay, good. That, that, that's what, what I was. I, I, I was just gonna say I've heard it's uh, very similar to people would recommend um, potentially just taking a multivitamin uh, just yeah. to, to make sure you're covered. Like it's you don't really need it potentially, especially if you're you're eating healthy, but it can cover basis just in case and there's no detrimental effects to yeah to it's probably not going to do anything bad awesome all right jamie well again thank you so much for your time and uh if people want to kind of keep up on um 
what you're doing uh, in, in your research and perhaps just in your daily findings, where can they uh, best find you? Um, I'm on Instagram um, as the Society for Neurosports. So we try to put some good infographics and keep up with the literature on there. Although I should warn you, I use my feed just for memes because I think I'm hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> and, and Neurosport is the uh, handle there? <laughs> um, but yes, yeah, Society for Neurosports. And um, we just started Twitter. And we have a website, Society for Neurosports as well. Awesome. 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 Well, I, I, I think that is all we have for now. But I, I know, Jamie, in there uh, was so much helpful information for us and, and certainly for our viewers. So thank you again for your time. Oh, no problem. Thanks. You guys. Yeah, I feel like we could we could chat about these topics all day. They're, it's fun for me. Yeah, we really could. It's, it's, it's something that I've always been super interested in. And it seems very similar to the fitness industry in general. There's a lot of um, bad information out there or misrepresented information. Right, exactly. Yeah. All right, Jay. Well, thanks again so much. And thank you all for listening.